Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, it's Vikram from Quantlayer and thank you for listening to our ninth podcast. In this episode, Faison and I talk about our experience at the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit here in New York and what we learned about custody solutions and infrastructure being built for institutional investors. We go over what a family office is and how they differ from institutional investors. We discuss how important custody is and why. We also break out a seven-point thesis for how funds should think about educating their managers and analysts on the crypto space. And we finish up by going through a series of alerts that hit our platform. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. You got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking, also joined by Faison, known as The Wizard. How's it going, Faison? Pretty good. How's your week been? It's been good. Just busy with our stuff and work in general. So yeah, it's been a busy week for us in the platform. I want to thank everyone who's been signing up for the platform and getting our weekly updates. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to take a look at the prior issues. But the goal of the update is basically, you know, we want to let you guys know how our product's getting updated and what features we're adding to the platform. So thanks. And I guess I didn't mention on my end, a big milestone was we did actually get our production-like environment up and running. So we'll have the platform ready to uh, share soon. That was one of the last big things ready before we launch our alpha. Yeah. And that's really cool because of the way the application has been architected. And Faison, you can probably talk to a lot of this stuff better than I can. You know, it's very easy for us to be able to add new sources the way it's all been set up. Yeah. So what's really nice is we're essentially working off uh, one code base. So it's not like we have a lot of little code bases that we have to maintain. But when it comes to architecture and deployment, we're able to run different chunks of it on separate nodes. And we may have 100 sources, but we can run 70 on one node and three on another or whatever makes sense in terms of resourcing and DevOps. So having that up and running is nice. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun too to take a look at, you know, we're eight podcasts in now. So I was just curious. I wanted to see, you know, which ones have been most listened to. And so the first one was our deep dive into the Bitcoin ETF filing and our comparison of NVIDIA and uh, Bitmain. So that was kind of interesting. That stood ahead of the rest of the pack. And then number two was our first episode, which makes sense. I imagine if, you know, new people coming in the, to listen to the podcast want to hear the Quantlayer Genesis story. So if you haven't listened to that one, that one's a lot of fun. You should definitely listen to that one. Uh, it basically covers how we got into this crypto rabbit hole. And the third one, which is actually right on the heels of number two, is our episode, I think the last one on short selling explained. And that was a fun one to record too. You should check that one out. It tries to give a really clear and concise explanation of how short selling works. So that one was a lot of fun too. And uh, you had some big news about non-crypto markets today. Yeah. So Apple officially hit a trillion dollar market cap which is pretty crazy when you think about how far it's come. I remember after Steve Jobs passed away in 2011 or so, and people were just saying that it was done, like it was cooked, it wasn't going to go anywhere, and it hit the height of its capabilities and whatnot, um, that they weren't going to have any new good products come out, they weren't going to differentiate themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it goes to show that it wasn't just Steve Jobs, it was the entire team he had, You know, their whole design method and infrastructure they had in place. So that was pretty, I don't know, there's a pretty big milestone as far as stocks go. 
the next closest one are probably what I think Microsoft and not Facebook anymore. They lost a big chunk. There was some chatter I remember earlier in the year about, oh, is a Bitcoin or Apple going to hit that trillion dollar market cap first? <laughs> Makes more sense that Apple hits it. But it also goes to show like how small the crypto market is. Yeah. So some other stuff that happened the last week, we were at the crypto hedge fund summit in here in New York City. And that was a great conference. So our friends at Trade Terminal uh, invited us to an event, this event that they were hosting it was an all-day event with really interesting talks that covered institutional asset management for crypto. So there was a great deal of talk around crypto custody and the different kind of infrastructure being built. And just as a heads up, Trade Terminal, we'll link them in our show notes, But and this is not an ad at all. I just really like what they're doing. So they're an algo, algorithmic crypto trading firm. They have 50 different strategies in place. They started off, their founder basically had been mining Bitcoin back in the day, and then he realized he could make more money building miners and then selling them. And then they used all that capital to build where Trade Terminal is now. So they came out to New York and I thought it would just be fun to talk through some of the stuff we learned there. Attendance was pretty robust. Like there were a few hundred people and there was a standing room only in the back. And there are a lot of people who've flown in from Asia. So I met a fund manager based in Hong Kong, a few in Taiwan, a few in Singapore. The type of US funds were a lot of these family office type of funds, which is probably the simplest way to manage funds given there's no real custody solutions right now. So they're all probably like self-custody at this point. So what is a uh, family office? Very broadly, they have a investing ability that's different from other investment advisors. So back in 2010, 2011, the SEC made a rule about this. I'll read a summary of the rule. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the commission, is adopting a rule to define family offices that will be excluded from the definition of an investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and thus will not be subject to regulation under the Advisors Act. So, and then it goes on to define what the family offices are and what the members of a family are. As proposed, Rule 202A11G-1 contains three general conditions. First, the exclusion is limited to family offices that provide advice about securities only to certain family clients. Second, it requires that family clients wholly own the family office and family members and or family entities control the family office. Third, it precludes a family office from holding itself out to the public as an investment advisor. And then it goes into like what a family member is. So it is what it sounds like someone who's member of a family or an SEC speak. A family member includes all lineal descendants of a common ancestor who may be living or deceased, as well as current and former spouses or spousal equivalents of those descendants, provided that the common ancestor is no more than 10 generations removed from the youngest generation of family members. All children by adoption and current and former stepchildren are also considered family members. It's just basically a member of your family. So the interesting thing about this document, this isn't crypto specific, but it's related to one of our prior podcasts about the Bitcoin ETF. So they cite that they received 90 comments on this document, mostly from legal representation of different family offices. And those comments helped guide their decision-making. A lot of people out there like to think that the SEC is this unit that's dictated by the government. They'll listen to whatever the government wants them to do. But they really actually do listen. And particularly like a field like crypto, they want to learn from the people that are involved in the field. So everyone listening, if there's a rule or decision that you care about that the SEC is reviewing, you can comment on it. 
we saw that with the Bitcoin ETF that's being proposed. I know we'll end up seeing like how they take those comments, but at least they do take them and they're definitely reading them. But seriously, stay away from the moon boy comments. Don't say when Lambo, when you're writing to the SEC, you know, be thoughtful and measured and explain why some aspect of the rule that you care about is important to you. And then someone at the SEC will read it. I mean, the family office one had 90 comments. The Bitcoin ETF one had less than 200. That's not a lot. I mean, you could spend a night just reading through them. So someone is going to read them. Just going back to the uh, family offices at this conference, what were they interested in specifically? They were interested in hearing. So they care about Bitcoin and other crypto in terms of what other institutions are going to do. They were interested a little bit in ICOs, but more so on the security token side, less so on the utility side. So last year where they might have been participating in ICOs, they're definitely not this year because the craze is over basically. But they are interested in where security tokens are headed. So yeah, family offices, they can take quote unquote more risky investments like Bitcoin. They can self-custody and do a whole bunch of other stuff. These funds that fall under that Advisors Act of 1940 that we mentioned earlier are the kinds of funds that take custody very seriously. Not that family offices don't, but you know some of them have legal requirements that they have to follow. And other things that we, a few other things that we heard at the conference are pretty interesting. So family offices come to the OTC or the over-the-counter desks. So typically in other markets, not crypto, if you go to an OTC desk, you can probably get a big discount to the asset you're purchasing. By big, I mean like a few percent, not like 25%. Like they would go in asking for 6% discounts because that's what they're used to. Like I want to buy a big stock of like Microsoft. I don't think they would get a 6% discount on that, but they would get some percentage discount. And instead, they're really, no one was giving them that. And so they realized they had to pay like a 20% premium if they wanted to buy a large block of Bitcoin stock, basically because there's no sellers. Oh, why? Oh, because there's no one selling that much? Yeah. And there's so much slippage Slippage is like when there's a big difference between your bid and your ask. If someone wants to sell like a $100 million block of Bitcoin, if they want to sell it to a family office, they're going to sell it at a premium. Because if they go to the open market, there might be too much slippage. It just doesn't make sense. They would lose money on that. Just the sale. That came up. We also heard chatter from developers about using state channels to trade and settle big blocks of Bitcoin. We'll keep an eye on that. That'll be interesting to see where that goes. Does that add any value over just people matching up and doing the transaction? Like two parties just executing a transaction, do they really need a technical solution? Like, is this a case of developers getting excited about doing something technically that can just be done now? Or is there some value add? I'm not sure. Like, it definitely felt like there are two views of thought on this on each coast. Like their their New York school of thought is like, oh, we, we have to have custody. We need to have insurance and reinsurers and all that. And then we had like, the West Coast crowd saying, we'll just do state channels and we have to worry about custody or insurance or anything like that. So I don't know the answer to your question, possibly. So family offices, they're doing a ton of OTC trading already. And when people are saying they're waiting for institutions, they're not talking about family offices. They're just talking about those investment advisors we were talking about earlier. And of course, there's theories that institutions are, quote unquote, holding down the market until they get involved. So I understand this theory. It's that somehow the crypto market is so manipulated, Bitcoin in particular, it's easy to manipulate. And so it, the price can be held down. There's the same theory about gold, that when gold futures came out, gold became more easy to manipulate because when they came out, were cash settled instead of not, they weren't physically settled. I don't have a whole ton of insight into this, but if the market can be manipulated on the way up with Tether and wash trading on exchanges then it probably can get manipulated on the way down too. I don't don't have any clear evidence about this, but it's definitely impossible. So yeah, but back to the conference, we did learn a ton 
about where custody and general infrastructure stands now. The keynote speaker, Nolan Bowerly, was from Coindesk. And Coindesk has put out the State of Blockchain Q2 report. It's pretty interesting how they lay stuff out. We'll link to it in the show notes. So a few of the report's highlights, there's five of them. And I'll just read through them very quickly and offer my interpretation of what they mean. So the first one, Bitcoin miner revenues fall by 22%, along with average fees by 19%. I think this is just directly related to price declines. Second one, Bitcoin hash rate grew by 26%, which fell short of the prior quarter at 47%. So this is also probably related to price. The prior quarter, the price was probably going up more and less so in Q2. But in any event, my interpretation is that, you know, the network hash rate continues to grow, which is great for security of the network. But then maybe it didn't hit prior growth rates. So it'll be interesting to see, like, if this is a good metric over time, will there be market expectations around what hash rate should be and whatnot? I'm not sure. Third observation, SEC declared Ether not a security and ETH price saw a 9% jump shortly after. So what were the ramifications if it had been declared a security? If it had been declared a security, there would have been a bunch of funds that had illegally participated in a security offering. And worst case, the government can come after you with a disgorgement penalty. That sounds very violent. It's terrible. Yeah, it sounds very violent, like a sword going through the belly. It's basically the government demands that you pay back all your profits. So if you're a fund, you know, you bought Ether like a dollar and it goes to $500 and you made $500 million profit. And now they're asking you to repay that. Like that's what they can do in non-crypto. I mean, it happens all the time. So if they had done that, that would have been pretty dramatic for the space because funds would have been forced to sell their crypto holdings in order to pay these disgorgement penalties. And it doesn't mean like we're out of the woods or anything. Like these penalties could still happen. I wouldn't be surprised if the SEC comes after some funds with these penalties. And maybe some ICOs are specifically more securities than other or more like securities than others. So in the in their case, maybe we see these disgorgement penalties pop up again. But it's definitely risk. Again, to your question, like if it had been declared a security, there would be in a massive hangover, like for a while. So number four, total ICO funding reaches about 19 billion with the average ICO of 39 million. Uh, 39 million seems kind of high. Maybe a more useful metric here is the median since the Telegram ICO and other monster ICOs are skewing things there. I always thought that there are a ton of like smaller offerings and then a couple that are huge. But even the smaller offerings seem more like what would you'd see in a seed round, but are raising 10x what they would in like traditional. Right. But even the median is a pretty high number. Yeah. And number five, the majority of survey respondents think price declines were caused by shorts and rebounds from over speculation. People love to say like when an asset goes down, it's because the shorts are doing it. So in our last podcast, we actually talked a lot about shorting, what's involved and how expensive it is especially in crypto. So I'm skeptical that shorting is the reason for the price declines. But again, this is just a survey. So, you know, I don't know who they were surveying, but I guess it makes sense there. Yeah. So Nolan walked through a few of those highlights and then a couple other areas that are really relevant for investors and actually actually pretty relevant to like our platform itself, like the kind of alerts that we're offering. So he broke out a traditional investing versus crypto investing into the kind of buckets people should care about. So he categorized this term as a early investing methodology, which is like trade volume, market cap, things like that. Things you can only see on exchanges. And 
that was like the traditional Wall Street view, I guess this is what he was calling it, this, which is only one part of the equation. But there's this new mix of stuff. And I buy a few of these more than others, but I'll go through them. So they, they highlighted buckets of interest. The first one, price interest. So, you know, actually what the price of the asset is, like what Bitcoin is, and then what Ether is relative to Bitcoin, what Zencash is relative to Bitcoin and so forth. Exchange interest, meaning like how much the asset trades on exchange, whether there are trading pairs in an asset. Like most trading pairs now are with Bitcoin, but some are popping up with Ethereum trading pairs. And, you know, the idea is like more trading pairs you have against a new currency, that new currency has more value because you need to buy that currency in order to buy the trading pair. Network interest, I'm definitely very interested in this one. This is on-chain transaction volume, hash rate, number of transactions, number of nodes, uh, transaction fees, things like that. Social interest, I'm less interested in this, but these are things like Reddit uh, subscribers, online subscribers, Twitter follows, Google search trends, new sentiment, things like that. I guess Google search probably more interested than necessarily the others, but we'll talk about these in general in a bit. And then also developer interest, like how many people are watching a GitHub repo, contributors, stats, forks, merge PRs, open issues, closed issues, new commits, stuff like that. So one general concern I have is about this approach is that it's possibly attributed attributing too much quantitative analysis to things that are A, very gameable, and B, not as concrete as something like revenue or earnings in traditional markets. Yeah, like your the big one that we saw in the ICO markets was Telegram followers. All these ICOs would pop up with like thousands of Telegram followers and it was bots or just garbage. Yeah, exactly. And also GitHub commits. The, those both are actually very easy to game. Yeah, just update the readme, change punctuation, etc. Exactly. I mean, we've seen that too, where like, it looks like something has had a hundred commits over a few days, which is in, in most software projects is a pretty decent number of commits. And you go look at them and there's just readme updates. Yeah. Same thing with, you know, mentioning Telegram and the fake GitHub, even Twitter. I guess Twitter has recently had the bot purge, but before that you could buy. Yeah. <laughs> Funny story there. We won't name any names, but we had a, a former coworker that likes to game these sort of things for personal, who knows for why. But uh, they went from, I think, somewhere around 50,000 to like 300 followers post Bobridge, which I thought was hilarious. Just overnight. Yes, yeah, so you can buy Twitter followers and have a high paid marketing team to respond to Reddit posts and whatnot. All that stuff's so gameable these days. So definitely don't view that as a, I don't think it's a great, like, it shouldn't be a cornerstone of any investment thesis. Yeah. I think with stuff like GitHub, there's definitely more qualitative stuff you can look for. You can see who's on the actual development team. Uh, if you are familiar with the programming language they're working in, even just glancing through some of the work, you, you can get an idea of the quality of work without try doing something quantitative. And there are static analysis tools you can run as well. But I guess that's a little more difficult to do technically than just quantitative stuff. And if you're non-technical and you just want like quantitative stuff, maybe that's why you look at the watchers because it's like a specific number. But I know just from experience, like I might watch a repo and then just not care anymore. I'll be like, oh, look, oh, that's interesting. Or I'll just watch it. Maybe I'll check it some other time. And then I just don't. Right. And I think that's kind of common. And this is a point of like, I don't know, for me, of a lot of interest on stuff I want to work on to add to the platform. Because right now we track all of these uh, GitHub commit messages. And like, if you search for the word bug, it'll basically surface all of the commits that had, you know, bug in the commit message. So you can quickly scan through. And a lot of them are UI or small things. But every now and then you see like a bug in like the smart contract code, which is definitely 
something to investigate further. You saw one in like Tron today, right? In the uh, like smart contract generation code, there was a bug that was fixed. And it, the problem was that it didn't have any more detail. At that point, you'd have to do a pretty deep dive or maybe reach out to the development team to see what was actually fixed. I think what's interesting for us to work on is some way of surfacing the second layer of information here beyond just here was a commit and maybe surfacing here's a commit that's more likely to have something interesting. So that's going to be something that we're, I think it'll be fun to work on in the coming weeks. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I mentioned, uh, so that's, that's as far as like gameability and what's useful within GitHub and what's not. And then as far as the, the, the second one is about revenue and earnings. So people always compare these crypto networks with companies and that comparison is just flawed. With companies, you have things like revenue and earnings and metrics associated with cash or the cash-like quality of a firm, and you can project its value, right? Like last three years, it's done this much. This is how much the market's growing. This is the thing that they're going to do to like get a hockey stick or whatever. And then you can bull case, you can come up with a value. You cannot do that in crypto. There's no earnings. There's no revenue. There's there's nothing like that. So that's a big reason you can't compare these crypto teams with companies. And it, it just messes up the discussion a little bit. With keeping all this stuff in mind, like I think the following is a pretty solid way to say I was running a, a crypto fund and had a team of analysts. This is what I would do. And I think this would cover a lot of what's important. We can call this like the quant layer plan, a crypto hedge fund. So the first thing I think that they should do is look into and have a solid understanding of the history of the internet and the history of the internet's protocols and how they fit with one another. So like TCP IP, FTP, SMTP, HTTP, HTTPS, what are all these things mean, right? I mean, if you go to Wikipedia's entry on internet protocol suite, uh, we'll link that in the show notes, you'll see how wide this is. There's like an application layer, transport layer, internet layer, link layer. So understanding this stuff is important. People don't need to know the technical details, like how it was implemented and you know what programming language, why they picked one language over another and all that. But understanding what they do, what problem they solved, I think that would help a lot. And we're seeing that now, particularly at protocol level discussions in crypto. And I think that will help aid a lot of that conversation. Second thing, so understanding application level protocols like say Gopher or FTP. So what problems did they solve that the root level protocol didn't? So people always talk about like second layer solutions for crypto and there's a lot of hate against it. And I think that hate is like, it's uneducated hate because you have certain limitations that a particular protocol has. And if you want to do anything on top of that protocol, you just have to build something else. I think we, we have talked about this a little bit before. And number three, then I have them study the cypherpunk movement and understand what that the cypherpunk movement wanted with respect to decentralization. Because they basically helped launch the original internet and things have become so centralized today, it's veered away from what its original intent. And none of this is very, isn't necessarily philosophical. I mean, it is, of course, by nature, but also it helps us understand, given how centralized things are today, where could they possibly head? Because that'll give you a view into the future of these protocols if they head in the direction that they're intended to. So those are the thematic things that I think are important. Next, of course, is understanding cryptographic technology and cryptocurrency technology, but not having to be necessarily a developer. You'd want to get to the point where you can look at a commit. And if you don't understand the code, that's fine. But, you know, from the commit title and the file name, 
maybe you can come up with some intelligent questions to ask developers about what's going on. And I think like the handful of things that we've provided in the past, we were talking a couple podcasts ago about the Gollum network, a mainnet bug where like funds were missing. Even if I wasn't a developer, I could look at that and just read it and say, okay, this seems a little off. Something seems weird. I think everyone can get to that point. You don't have to be a developer to just look at a commit. Number five, I guess along these lines, get involved with the developer community. You know, find out why they're making particular decisions and ask them what can be done on-chain and what has to be taken off-chain, given you know whatever their vision is. So understanding this will help understand future network growth and development. So that's all like the, you know, we had some themat- thematic stuff and then some code for non-technical user type of stuff. And then for the financial analysts in the crowd, there is one area that they can get really deep in. And that's number six, which is just understand on-chain metrics and why they're important. This is probably most related to a financial analyst or research analyst type of role, but it's a great way to understand a cryptocurrency's network health right now. So these are things like on-chain transaction volume, hash rate, number of tr- nodes, you know, how decentralized the network is, transaction fees and stuff like that. So I think like if you get those six things nailed down, and of course it takes time, I think the Getting the thematic things is important and it takes a little bit of time to like come to the same place that the cypherpunk movement kind of wanted. And I would add a a seventh point to that. And it ties back to point number one, um, where you focused a lot on, uh, you know, history of Internet protocols. But I would say also the history of just Bitcoin, because in the development of Bitcoin and like leading up to it, and then even after, you know, the white paper came out, but then the subsequent development, a lot of the scaling problems, security issues, like things that are underlie most cryptocurrencies in, you know, if not directly, then thematically, a lot of that stuff is very thoroughly discussed at a high level by the Bitcoin team and its supporters. And so I think that can give you a really good grounding in the sort of topics around technology and scaling and the game theory slash economic incentives of the participants or different attack vectors that have worked and why they work when you're assessing any other up and coming cryptocurrency. So I think some of the stuff that's very crypto specific is really there in, in the like last 10 years of Bitcoin's history and maybe to a lesser extent uh, Ethereum. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because not understanding Bitcoin's history can end up clouding someone's judgment. So if you took like, because you see... So many comments around some of these other cryptocurrencies saying like, oh, Bitcoin's block size is too small. You see these currencies getting attacked or doing stupid stuff and they make a decision and then it goes south and it turns out that, oh, in 2013, the Bitcoin team like actually discussed this and like this was a known issue, but this new coin team overlooked it. And so obviously it's Bitcoin is a very specific type of a cryptocurrency, but a lot of the underlying issues that affect all but the very esoteric cryptocurrencies you should at least understand those first and then you can obviously keep going and learning about the more esoteric stuff but having a good grounding in just the basics bitcoin is a great place to start yeah i know we went on a little tangent there so coming back to the conference we were at and some of the other things that we learned about custody and infrastructure i think it really hit home about how important custody is so we all have heard you know a thousand times that custody is really really important for institutions and it is so in the US if you're a 150 million dollar fund or bigger you're legally required to have a custodian. So if you're that big of a fund you literally cannot hold bitcoin without a custodian. So 
there are very few good custody solutions right now. And this is a big problem. If you manage money on behalf of someone, you have to take on a lot of legal risk. In crypto, it's heightened because if you lose your client's private keys, you are done. There is no recourse, absolutely none. So as a result, firms are looking to for reinsurance companies because someone has to take that risk on. Like we can only punt that risk so far. I'm the fund. I'm going to punt the risk to the custodian. Custodian needs to punt the risk to somebody. And it's going to keep going that way until the insurer is going to get involved. That was pretty interesting. There's been a little movement in the space. We heard that there is someone insured a 125 million block of Bitcoin. So someone is willing to take that risk on, which is pretty interesting. There was also some chatter about decentralized custody solutions. And I think these were a little too like high level. I didn't hear many specifics about it. I think it's going to probably be harder to get those to meet the legal requirements in the short term, right? So there was a law panel at the end of the conference and it was just all lawyers. And one thing that they mentioned was that in order for the crypto community to get rid of custody rules for crypto funds, blockchain tech will have to prove itself. And that's what they said. And we'll see like what that means. But that's the kind of thing that seems like it's pretty far out. Decentralized custody solution. That seems like a thing that's pretty far away from adoption. How much cash does uh, Berkshire Hathaway have? Can they just reinsure all of the crypto right now? Yeah, they should. That would be hilarious if they just don't, if that's how they decide to take the risk on. We won't buy Bitcoin, but we'll insure it. So what else do we learn? Yeah. So some of the firms that are more uh, trading or market making oriented, so they leave assets on exchanges. And of course, that brings a ton of risk into the equation. You know, you leave an asset on an exchange, like you go into our platform, type in hack or exchange hack. There's literally tons and tons of articles that pop up. Yeah, I think it was like close to a billion dollars already this year or something like that. They manage this risk. And I think calling it manage is a stretch. They manage it by having assets across multiple exchanges. They just put a small percentage of total assets on a single exchange. Like they won't put 30% of their crypto assets on a single exchange. Because if they lose that, it's a 30% loss. So all that stuff was pretty interesting on the custody side. And then on the infrastructure side, we heard some interesting stuff. So funds currently spend a lot of capital on back office expenses, particularly around regulatory expenses. Current estimate is 80% of back office fund expenses are regulatory related. So in 10 to 20 years, this will become 5%, presumably due to the work that's going on right now. You know, one of the panelists made this kind of controversial statement, especially with all the asset managers in tow. Asset managers will be like Uber drivers. So I guess what he meant there was, you know, as Uber transferred wealth from the medallion taxi market of yesterday to individual drivers, there's this budding view now that yesterday's asset managers will begin to lose share to a platform of decentralized crypto asset, new asset managers. And we'll see how that plays out. There are a few crypto projects that have embraced this view. Like what they're doing is they have a platform that you can trade on. And they also keep track of all your returns. So there's no way to fake it. Okay. So that's one side of the marketplace. The other side of the marketplace is, you know, if you wanted to invest in one of these managers, you can go look at all the managers they have in their system and see what their returns are. And then decide, oh, this manager consistently makes 3% every month. That's my kind of manager. And you just can go send them some ether and here, go manage my Bitcoin, go manage my ether. Uh, just because it's easy to send your funds like you just need a wallet and you just send it. If it was not crypto, you would have to do a wire transfer 
I don't think they actually do like KYC AML. So that adds some risk. In the US, you have to be a, an accredited investor to invest in particular types of funds. Here, like say you just, you know, say someone made like a few thousand on a crypto and they just want to see it grow and they trust that someone in this fund historically has done really well, they can just send it to them. They're not, they don't need to be accredited or anything. I guess I don't follow why that is legal, like doing that with crypto, but not with, like I get why it's not legal with regular money. Like you have to be accredited. Why can I just send like $5,000 worth of Bitcoin to someone and have them, they're trading it on my behalf without me being accredited? So why is that okay? I don't know if it's okay or not. There's just no rules in place that have said it's not allowed. Uh, so some of these managers aren't even in the US. Like I remember looking at one of these platforms and one of the managers was like in Poland who's been doing really well. And if I'm the one that's sending the money, am I am I at risk of getting disgorged? I don't know. Like my limit of legal knowledge is the use of term disgorgement. I think we need to have, we have, so, we have so many of these questions that have piled up that I think we probably need to have a lawyer on to just run through all of these scenarios. We just ask them the most ridiculous questions and they'll give us serious answers about it too. This whole like decentralized manager thing, I think is very interesting because if somebody in Poland can trade crypto successfully and put up like good returns on a regular basis, like why are you buying like a S&P futures index or why are you giving money to your mutual fund that's charging a few percentage just to match the market? I mean, this is the idea behind why hedge funds became popular. It's because in down markets, they were supposed to protect their investors and produce much better returns. So We'll see how this plays out. I actually do think there's merit to this. I think it is controversial, of course, to say asset managers are going to be like Uber drivers, but it doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah. To me, like the the big change here is still not like technological because I feel like with online, with software and online money transfer, I don't see how this is that different with me sending $5,000 to some guy in Poland, assuming the legal issues aside versus me sending $5,000 of uh, the equivalent Bitcoin. It seems to me the main issue is really just the legal one. But yeah, I guess I just need to learn more about this. Yeah. Some of the other things that these platforms are trying to do, they're trying to like, you can invest in a strategy, like spread out my 5,000 worth of Bitcoin across like a manager that's this risky, you know, put 10% in a really risky manager with like really volatile returns and like put the other 90% in like a safer one, things like that. It's going to get pretty crazy. Like I'm really curious how this is going to look in five years. Another thing we heard, which, you know, starting to make sense is like, so 2000 year was the year of crypto only funds popping up and 2018, the panelists, you know, they'd been saying they see a lot of more traditional asset managers open up crypto desks. So this is like BlackRock doing research into crypto or Morgan Stanley just the other day, I think yesterday announced they hired a former Credit Suisse banker to head their digital asset strategy. These are pretty conservative businesses that are hiring because there's so much demand from their clients to find out because it's really embarrassing. Like if you manage a high net worth individual's assets and you tell them for years, like they're hearing from their friends that Bitcoin's really interesting. And then you tell them that, oh no, Bitcoin's not interesting. Just don't get involved. It's just hype. It's fraud. It's just drug money. And then their friends go and make like 100x, 200x. It's embarrassing. So they got to cover their ass and do something in the space. So yeah, overall, like it was a really interesting co- uh, conference. Um, had us pretty excited about like where things are heading, especially on the infrastructure side, since you know that's what we're building. Speaking of what we're building, we had some uh, interesting alerts come through again that I took some notes of. One thing I know that you care about a lot is we're seeing a lot of high usage ETH contracts 
we're not going to link to them because a lot of them are shady businesses and I guess we don't want to give them any additional traffic. What do you think of those? So like there are a couple legitimate Ponzi-like schemes that had the highest DApp usage on the Ethereum network in the last couple of weeks. And I think I mentioned them to you and I remember you had this, I had never heard of these things before. So I was curious to hear your views on it, but they reminded you of these real-time auctions. So basically they were like, okay, you have the next hour and whoever is the last person to submit ETH to this address is the one who's going to win the pot. So just imagine like what the consequences of that are. They, I guess they reminded you of these like real-time auctions, right? Oh, the uh, like the penny ones that I was showing you? Like how do those real-time auctions work? Yeah. So this was, uh, I think this came out when I was in like high school or college. I just remember it was very fascinating because at the time I didn't have any money. So the thought of getting some of this stuff real cheap was cool. And then I investigated it and I was like, well, this is a crazy scam designed to take advantage of people. But they're still around a few of them. But there was a time when they were like huge, like they were advertising on like national television. But basically it's an auction, but unlike, you know, your eBay or whatever, where the highest bidder wins and then either the seller or the buyer pays a small auction fee. What you do is you essentially buy bids and each bid increments the price by a penny. So let's say you want a one of the shiny new MacBook Pros for like all loaded up $3,500 and you go on this auction site and you'll see it like the bid is at $200. That sounds like a great deal. And essentially what you can do is let's say I take my eight cents, I buy a hundred bids. So for $8, I can now bid a hundred times or but to increment this thing by a penny, essentially whoever the last bidder is obviously gets to keep the thing. And generally they go for a lot, lot lower than if it's worth 3,500 bucks, it'll go for quite a bit less than you'd find it anywhere. But on this auction side site, they're essentially making money on like in one of these cases, seven or eight cents per one cent increment. And it's the summation of all those one cent bids. So something that's $200 has actually had, what is that, 2,000, 20,000 bids placed at seven, eight cents a piece. So even though the buyer might get to purchase this thing for $1,500 plus what they spent on bids, the auction site might have made $20,000 on this thing by just collecting bids, essentially charging everyone for their bids. And so I think, yeah, we're seeing some form of these sorts of things that have existed, but now are able to exist again because it's crypto and no one looks at history. We're seeing that in the ETH space. Not to give like people business ideas, but this is the kind of thing that auction say seems just like perfect for crypto. Because it's all these little low fee microtransactions. Like with the traditional auction sites, just because of credit card processing fees, they still have to sell you like bids and chunks for the economics to make sense. Like you have to buy like 150 bids or something. With this, they can go pretty small or just take the uh, transaction like when you make the bids. It's a great platform for some of these really shady businesses to sort of have a second life. Great platform. Maybe I'm just bitter because I never won a uh, won anything on those sites. I was like 19. Another, you know, a topic that we've mentioned loosely before is, you know, when evaluating the credibility of some of these ICOs or coin teams is a lot of times like the coin team is legitimate and they have good intentions. Other times they're legitimate and they have good intentions, but like the structure of the ICO may be that they really take a lot of their, like cash out very early. Ideally, you want something where they're incentivized to keep working and their payout is if the platform is successful, like down the road. And then there's just, you know, outright fraud. There was this thing called Mobile Go. It's part of this G Nation. It's basically esports wagering, mobile MMO game platform. And basically the CEO and his brother were, it looks like they may have committed some fraud. And so whenever you hear like CEO and his brother, it's probably not good. 
Yeah. Money was withheld from company employees. One of the guys in charge unpaid for his work since shortly after the ICO. Basically, once all this came to light, the price is down 85% against the dollar and 96% against Bitcoin since the ICO. So it's pretty much and probably unlikely to recover. Right. Not necessarily crypto related, but it seems like it's a great application of crypto. But like esports are on fire. I saw an article recently about like parents are starting to hire coaches for their kids who play Fortnite. Fortnite has hit some ridiculous number in sales. I think it's hit like a billion dollars in sales. Stadiums are getting rented out to watch like FIFA video games, like soccer video games being played. And then like World of Warcraft and stuff like that. It's just interesting to see how that's like progressing. But it seems like a pretty good use case. Gambling on esports seems like a pretty good use case for crypto. And interestingly, I mean, I remember when like $50,000 was a really big purse for an esports competition. Now these guys are like millionaires that are at the top of their game. But also I know like even the NBA struck a partnership with, I think like the MGM or one of those gaming groups to be like their official partner, which I thought was crazy because, you know, traditional sports and gambling always had a really negative connotation. And now we're, we're essentially seeing like sports betting and esports betting all going very mainstream. And I think adding crypto to the mix is really going to, it's fuel to the fire. So we'll see how all that industry plays out. I think Mark Cuban invested or promoted some e-gaming ICO. I forgot the name. We have to look into it, but uh, pretty interesting space. You just bought an Xbox, right? You just started playing. I did. I just got an Xbox. I haven't like console gamed in a really long time. When I was at the fund, I was at during earnings season. Once earnings calls were over, like most calls are probably over around six o'clock. Our PM had like an Xbox with Halo 2 and all of us would just like go in there and play for like two, three hours. It was ridiculous. Like all of us would go home at like nine or 10 just playing for hours and hours of Halo. But yeah, no, I got that Call of Duty, uh, World War II. It was phenomenal. The graphics are so good for like the campaign. Multiplayer is, is like, they're good, but not much has changed in the last 10 years. I got like a Halo Master Chief where you can like Halo 1 through 4. There is slight improvements as far as graphics go for Halo 4 versus 1. But like the gameplay and stuff, it doesn't feel like super different. But regardless, there's still a lot of fun to play. I wasn't actually allowed to have an Xbox or any video game system. So I got my first Xbox when I was uh, 19. Pretty much just a whenever Grand Theft Auto comes out, I'll play that game and then I play FIFA and that's it. Is that what you have right now? Those two? Yeah. I also have a Forza. Like I had the whole wheel and simulator set up that I'd use to learn racetracks before I'd go drive on them. But now that the classic car club has its own like full simulator, I put that in a way in storage because I'm not going to use my own. Going back to uh, yeah alerts we found. So in a previous episode, I had mentioned that this Alexander Vinnick guy is accused of some fraud. There was a supposed assassination attempt. Basically, Russia has also been trying to extradite him. He's been holed up in Greece. And it looks like they finally got uh, legal approval to have him uh, extradited. So we'll see how that goes. Because according to the article, he's responsible for up to $4 billion in fraud, which is a pretty hefty sum. Do these numbers mean anything anymore? Like, does a billion mean anything? Well, my problem is like, there's been so much price volatility is like, was that $4 billion in December? Which is like, let's say Bitcoin does go to like 500k or whatever. What's going to be interesting is seeing like articles written about value of some of these frauds in 2025 dollars. I think there was like the $30 million Bitcoin auction after they recovered the stuff from the Silk Road. That was a lot of Bitcoin bet in, you know, 2013 dollars. So it'll be interesting to see what these numbers inflate to if Bitcoin does go to huge valuations. And then we always discuss like the scale of fraud in Bitcoin. I think both of us are pretty pro crypto, but also want to keep a 
close eye on all the shady stuff that goes on. Someone put a uh, article together, basically adding up all of the uh, fines that banks have paid since 2008. So it's it actually an investment banking firm, Keefe, Broyett, and Woods. So the top 11 biggest banks in the U.S. have paid an amazing $243 billion in fines since 2008. And then it goes, it's a very opinionated piece. And it goes on to say, like, those are just a fraction of the actual, like, illegal fund activity that the banks participated in. And they put an estimate of, like, 20 trillion. And I, I don't know if I buy all that, but the number that is legitimate is the fines actually paid. It's just to say that, like, there's a lot of shadiness that goes on in crypto, but it's always good to get a perspective of what that compares to against some other financial instrument. But yeah, one of the examples they give, uh, New York Department of Financial Services fined the British bank Standard Chartered $340 million for allegedly laundering $250 billion of Iranian money. Their claim is like banks are paying these huge fines, but it's actually less than 1% of ill-gotten gains. I think that's a bit of a stretch because I think that's just money that passed through. It's not like the banks made that money, but regardless, it's a lot of fines. Oh, another one that I found which was interesting because uh, you know we've talked about GitHub and how we we basically listen to most of these uh, GitHub repos, but this exchange Altex basically had a lot of money stolen because of a bug in their uh, wallet. And so what's neat about that is like the article actually referenced like PR number 3985 fixed a wallet balance display bug, which seems innocuous enough, but this bug also extends to exchanges. And it goes on to explain the bug in detail. So what's neat is like, you know, we thought that there was value in tracking all of these commits with their messages. And we're seeing that a lot of these articles that are referencing fraud related to bugs in the code are actually referencing these same PRs. So there's definitely something there. Yeah, that is very interesting. I just imagine like a future Bloomberg, for example, like you're just waiting. I remember like during earnings season, you're just staring at your screen. Like if you're a short term trader, right, waiting for like earnings to hit. For like Facebook, you're just waiting and it always hit like Bloomberg first. It would hit and then be a stream of like headlines. It's like they're either journalists or maybe they have like a really rudimentary form of programmatic analysis in place, but it would spit out like important lines from the press release very quickly. So I just imagine a future where like you see XMR. PR number 8,024 merged. Everyone knows what that is. Yeah, another uh, scam that we found. So this uh, EOS Gas Alpha Wallet V11 that was released, it was basically, if you put your private keys into this wallet, you have your unstaked token stolen instantly. They disabled comments in Telegram and they were basically trying to get people to use their wallet and it happened to be a scam. Luckily, it showed up in our platform shortly after the wallet release. But just be careful where you put your private keys as always. I know that I had, once again, we're hitting our uh, one hour limit. I have this whole diatribe about IOTA that I think has been pushed two weeks now. So I think next week we'll maybe aim to squeeze it in at the beginning. Cool. So until next time. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R or email me at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at quantlayer.com. I will write back. Thanks. Thanks.